This is The Plural of You, a podcast about people helping people. I'm Josh Morgan. (laughs) Alvin Irby is a man of many talents who lives in Harlem, New York. Until recently, he was probably best known for his day job as a kindergarten and first grade teacher, or for his role as a stand-up comedian in the New York comedy scene. Now he's making a name for himself as the founder of the Reading Holiday Project, a nonprofit organization that encourages Black and Latino youth to read. His first program is Barbershop Books, which works with barbershops throughout New York City to create reading spaces for children. Alvin and I talked not long ago about Barbershop Books, his fondness for crochet, and other things he has going on. And I'll play that conversation in a moment. I've talked before on the plural of you about third places, which are places other than home or work where people can gather to socialize. Different groups of us tend to favor different third places. For example, Adam Greenfield's park benches in San Francisco, Ian Acker's sober gym in Salt Lake City, and the Harrison Street skate spot in Kansas City. In the same sense, barbershops double as community centers in cities across the United States. Social scientists have found that the presence of barbershops in urban neighborhoods often correlates with increased social resilience, meaning they generally lead to more frequent social interactions and make residents better equipped to confront some of the problems they face. Countless leaders and organizations have attempted to use barbershops in the past, either to launch education campaigns or to rally support for their causes. Alvin Irby wasn't the first person to realize that barbershops are influential places, but he is among the first to see their potential as places where children can go to learn. And this could have a tremendous effect on many people's lives in the long run. I've admired Alvin's work for a few months now. He's getting a lot of attention lately, and I highly recommend you follow what he's doing. He's someone that I'm sure we'll be hearing more about in the future. Here's Alvin Irby, founder and director of the Reading Holiday Project. Hey, Alvin. Hey, how are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's, it's, uh, man, it's been crazy, man. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you say that? Just a lot going on. You know, I got to get more volunteers to delegate stuff and. What's going on today? Well, I had a, a, a meeting, well, several meetings, then I'm having to like pick up stuff. And then also like, since I was near some of the barber shops. I went into one of the barber shops to like straighten up stuff. So it's like just a lot of different things really going on, but in a good way. Oh, of course. Yeah. Good problems to have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this weekend, the end of this weekend, I'm going to be heading to Iowa to interview. I'm a finalist for an alumni service award from my alma mater. That's $25,000. Who's your alma mater? Grinnell College, small liberal arts school in Iowa. Okay. so. So how do you make time for all this stuff, man? Like I've seen you crocheting on the subway. You're, you're in comedy shows. You're going to D.C. tomorrow. Like, how do you make time for all this? Well, I am no longer going to D.C. because New York One invited me to come in and do an interview in the studio at the New York One studio since they selected me as a New Yorker of the week. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. But how do I get it all done? All I can say is I went to Grinnell. A lot of the people I knew at Grinnell were doing a million different things at once. So being surrounded by lots of people just like that, you know, was just it just became like a norm. And so I've kind of always, even before Grinnell, I was doing a million different things. I guess that's just 
how I roll every day. I'm just trying to get my Paul Robeson on, you know? (laughs) That's great, man. So I I think I read back in April, you were almost finished with your master's in, uh, was it public administration? Yeah, I graduated from NYU this, this May. For that, I did a master's in education at Bank Street College of Education here in New York City. Good for you. Yeah, all finished. What are you looking to do? Uh, pay my loans. <laughs> <laughs> you to everybody else. I purposefully, you know, when I graduated from NYU, I chose not to apply to jobs because I wanted to work solely on growing barbershop books. So how long were you a teacher? I was a teacher for four years. I was an assistant teacher full time for a year in the Bank Street School for Children. I taught first grade in the Bronx at PS69 for two years. And then I taught kindergarten as a founding kindergarten teacher at Kip Infinity Elementary School in Harlem. After a year at Kip, I took a position as an education director at the Boys Club of New York in East Harlem. While there, I decided that I wanted to get formal management experience. I mean, I literally went from teaching kindergarten to managing a staff of 16, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was quite a, a change. And it was amazing. I really enjoyed the experience. And I really enjoyed working with the young people as well as leading professional developments for my staff. But I felt like that I would benefit from having formal management training. And that's when I decided that I wanted to go to NYU Wagner to pursue a master's in public administration. So I decided to leave the boys club after two years to go to grad school full time. And part of my decision to go full time also uh, was influenced by my desire to create barbershop books and to start my own nonprofit. And so Literally, before I even left, I contacted a logoist I know who's a famous logoist, and he created the Reading Holiday Project logo, which is the name of the nonprofit that I founded, Reading Holiday Project Incorporated. Could you explain the purpose of the Reading Holiday Project? And then I know Barbershop Books is your first program. What all do you have going on? Right. So right now, Barbershop Books is pretty much all that we have going on. but. The idea initially was really that I would create an umbrella literacy organization because the issue of closing the reading achievement gap can't be solved with any one program or any one initiative. It's really going to take a a host of collaboration and a kind of holistic way of addressing the diverse challenges that boys of color face. Reading Holiday Project was the name of the nonprofit that I founded. The idea for the name really came from, you know, an experience I had while studying abroad in London when I discovered that a holiday meant to take a break, right? They don't say I'm going on vacation. They say I'm going on holiday. And so what I decided is that I wanted kids to take a little break to read. Oh, I like that. I want them to just take a little reading holiday. But you know, I read a few marketing books and branding books, and I realized that I couldn't call the program in the barbershops the same name as the organization because it didn't really capture the essence of what was happening in barbershops. And so I kind of used some of my creative exercises for brainstorming to uh, come up with the name Barbershop Books. 
And I think that that was kind of one of the best decisions that I I made is really giving Barbershop Books its own separate and unique identity, creating reading spaces, child-friendly reading spaces in barbershops. What specific problems are you looking to address with the Barbershop Books project? Right. So one has to do with addressing the issue of boys not identifying as readers. And I think that there are a few reasons why boys, especially boys of color, black boys, Latino boys, why they many of them don't identify as readers. I think one, it has to do with a lack of relevant reading models. And when I say relevant reading models, I'm particularly talking about black males reading models, or in the case of Latinos, uh, adult Latino male reading models. And, you know, when it comes to black boys and and black men in the classroom, you know, less than 2% of teachers in the United States are black males. And when you get down to the early grades, right, K to three, which is really the critical period for reading acquisition, it's well below 1%. So we have a situation where millions of black boys across the United States never encounter black males engaging with them in reading in school. Then I didn't know that. When we get to the the kind of home and community situation where we have a situation where a majority of black boys are raised by single parent mothers and many of the black men that may be present aren't necessarily involved in boys early reading experiences. Well, now we have a situation where not only are black men not involved in their early reading experiences in school, but they're not involved at home either or in the community. So so many people, you know, when I talk to people, you know, people want to know, well, why aren't black boys reading or what can we do to help black boys read? And the question that I feel like is really most important is really the question, why should black boys read? And I don't mean that in a literal sense, because, you know, we know boys need to read and everybody needs to know how to read to go to college and to pursue other subjects. But the question I'm asking really has to do with what social, cultural or environmental cues or factors are present to lead black boys or Latino boys to the idea that reading is something they should do. Things don't just come out of thin air. And what I would argue is that many boys don't have a reason to read. They haven't been given or nothing in their immediate environment is really giving them signals that reading is something they should be doing. And, it's, and I'm not just talking about people telling them because all their teachers tell them they should read. But what does it mean for a black boy to never see an adult black man reading or, or engaging them in reading? What are the implications of that? I think that the implications are the more than 85 percent of black boys who are not proficient in reading in 2015. So that's one thing is just a lack of, uh, of kind of relevant reading models. And then also a lack of engaging books. And when I say engaging books, I'm talking about books that are culturally relevant. I'm talking about books that are age appropriate and also books that are gender responsive. A lot of the books that boys love and enjoy reading aren't necessarily the books that are used for instructional purposes in classrooms. It would be a a very rare occurrence for a kindergarten teacher to use a book about trucks or transformers or something like that for instructional purposes. They definitely will let boys read books like that during their free choice time or even during their independent reading time. And I think that those kind of implicit bias 
against books that boys would like ends up sending signals to boys that what they think or their preferences for books aren't really valued in a school setting. And so I don't think that's something necessarily that's purposeful or that teachers set out to do that kind of thing. But I think that because a lot of the teachers are women, right, who are teaching boys from kindergarten to third grade, many of them have a bias against the books that the boys generally, you know, enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment, I guess, when you're planning barbershop books, when you kind of thought to yourself, you know, this might can work? Well, I think the moment when I got the idea, I thought that it had a lot of potential before I had even tried anything out, tested anything out. I literally was in the Bronx after school, getting a haircut in a barber shop that was across the street from PS69 and Soundview in the Bronx. And while getting a haircut, one of my first grade students walks in, plops down. You know, he's staring out the window with a bored look on his face. And then he starts kind of getting antsy and jumping around and running around. And his mom is like, you know, really frustrated. And the whole time I'm watching this, you know, go down, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, he really should be practicing his reading right now. I know what his reading scores are, right? I know what his reading level is and he should be practicing. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, I wish I had, you know, a fun children's book with me that I could give him to read while he's waiting on his haircut. And so after that, I said, you know, this is something that someone should do. Someone should create little reading spaces in barbershops. And this was back in like 2009 or 2010. And I said to myself, well, I think it's a great idea, but I don't know that I have the experience both as an educator or as a nonprofit leader to really convince people that they should give me money to make this happen. And so I wrote a little one pager about the program and I saved it in my Google Docs or I emailed it to myself and I just kept it there until 2013. When I left the boys club and decided to go to NYU Wagner and I took it out and I looked at it and I decided this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to use my graduate school program to help me, you know, bring it to fruition. Good for you, man. That's great. Yeah. What have you been able to accomplish so far since you started this? So last summer I launched a small crowdfunding campaign and raised around $2,600. That money allowed me to purchase materials to pilot the program. And so I piloted uh, reading spaces in six uh, barbershops in New York City. And over the last year, I've kind of just been monitoring them, talking to barbers, parents, observing the spaces, and kind of just trying to learn how it's being used or not being used, and also to create a model that is replicable and scalable. This year, working with a team of students from NYU, we won uh, $5,000 as finalists in a public policy competition at the University of Pennsylvania's Fields Institute. Also, you know, there's been a, a quite a bit of publicity recently. The Atlantic City Lab published an article about barbershop books, Governing Magazine, BBC, NBC4 here in New York City just recently aired a segment about barbershop books. And it's just really exciting. I mean, I'm in conversations right now 
with individuals from fatherhood.gov who work with over 200 barbershops across the United States working on fatherhood initiatives. And so I'm talking to them and hoping to collaborate with them. But I'm also talking to just a variety of people. I mean, I'm talking to librarians. I'm talking to local government officials. I'm talking to parents. I'm talking to barbers, barbershop owners. You know, I really want to make this program as easy as possible to replicate, but also maintaining high quality uh, in terms of ensuring that the books that are in the reading spaces and the way that it's being implemented really resonates with young boys of color in a way that will help them identify as a reader and also to just read more for fun. So what's the process like for setting up a reading space? Like, do people come to you and say, hey, can you set this up for me? Or how does that work? So it really is a a combination. Some people told me about some of the barbershops that we uh, piloted in. Others, I literally, me and and a volunteer graduate student from Columbia, we just hit the pavement. We walked around, had conversations with barbershop owners, explained what we were trying to do. And then from there, we, you know, we set it up and we would come back and and monitor the spaces regularly, replacing missing and damaged books. Because, you know, we expected and budgeted for certain books to be permanently borrowed. Oh, that's smart. Because when you're choosing books that boys really love to read, you know, some of them might accidentally pick it up and forget to put it back. In our mind, you know, those are considered donations to the community, right? A boy somewhere is reading a book that we put in our space. You know, the way it's set up currently is for them to be permanent fixtures in the barbershop that will be there for all the customers and especially the youngest clientele to use while they're waiting on a haircut. Or last week I went into Fig's Barbershop and there was a daughter waiting with her father. You know, he was waiting to get his haircut. And so he started reading one of the books with his daughter while he was waiting for his haircut. You know, although boys of color are our kind of target audience, you know, anyone who comes into a barbershop can pick up one of the books and um, there really aren't any restrictions in that regard. So I'm wondering, and, and I hope this isn't too personal, but would you say your childhood was similar to the children that you're serving now? Can you relate to what they're going through? Well, I mean, I grew up and was raised by a single parent mother. And so you know, in that respect, I, I can relate to a lot of young boys of color who are living with and being raised by single parent mothers. My mom, you know, was an elementary school teacher. And so there's a certain expectation from my mom about me learning to read. But what I would say is that I actually had a very strong repulsion <laughs> or distaste or disdain or You could think of a million other negative adjectives for how I felt about books that wasn't positive at all. And my mom, seeing that I wasn't reading as well as she believed I should be reading, she actually used to make me come in from playing outside and do reading lessons with her. And that made me just hate reading even more. (laughs) And it wasn't even like she was using fun books like the books that I'm choosing for my reading spaces. These were like dry, basal text-like books with these little boring short stories. And it just made me hate it. I mean, over time, between that and her sending me to summer school one year, you know, so that I could get even more help with my reading, 
you know, I definitely became proficient in reading, but it wasn't until actually high school that I really began to fall in love with reading so much so that during my junior year for a science fair project, I surveyed over 200 of my classmates to find out what their reading behavior and reading habits were like. And I discovered that a majority of my peers didn't read unless it was required for class. They literally indicated that they didn't read anything. And so I just having, you know, developed this kind of love for reading, I found that to be problematic. And so I decided to run for student council president. And the platform that I ran on was that I was going to create a reading incentive program for my high school. And so what I did is that summer after my junior year, I became the student council president. That summer, I wrote a grant proposal outlining the program and how it will work. It was called It Takes Two. Pretty much students had to write a two paragraphs about a book that they felt other students should read. And I uh, wrote a $810 grant proposal and set up a meeting with the community relations manager at the Barnes & Noble in Little Rock, Arkansas. Barnes & Noble in Little Rock gave me an $810 grant to implement a reading incentive program at my high school during my senior year in high school. Wow. And so I did that. I didn't think anything of it, really, other than I was just trying to help, you know, other high school students to like reading more. And uh, then I went off to college to Grinnell. Why do you think reading was important to you to an extent that you wanted to start a, a project about it in high school? Well, there were some experiences that started to make me conscious of educational inequalities. I was in regular classes pretty much all my freshman and sophomore year. And I remember being in a regular English class my sophomore year where we were reading short stories and doing spelling lists in 10th grade in Arkansas. Oh. And I remember having nearly a 100% A. And I remember thinking, like, no one should have a 100. Like, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I just knew something was wrong. And so I literally went to my counselor and I said, can you please switch me into any other type of class? I've been in this class an entire semester. And all I've learned is that my teacher thinks OJ is innocent. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I should be learning more. So anyway, she switched me into a pre-AP class, which was a pre-advanced placement English class for sophomores. First semester ended, the second semester started, and I walk into this new class. And the first day, I remember thinking to myself, where did all these white people come from, right? My school was almost entirely black and Latino, but in this advanced class, all of a sudden it got really diverse. And I was huh. just like, is there a separate entrance? Where are they hiding them? Like, <laughs> what's going on in this school? And so that was something that jumped out at me. And then the teacher starts pulling out all this paper, this thick paper that had all these book titles. And I was like, why is she giving us all these book titles, right? And she says, well, I would like for uh, you all to choose two books that you're going to read this semester and you're going to write reports about them. And I remember thinking to myself, two whole books, like the whole thing, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, whoa, is this still 10th grade? Like, how can there be such a huge difference in terms of expectations between this regular English class and this pre-AP class? Yeah, And so for me, that really opened up 
my mind and it was kind of reading and the differences around what was inspecting in terms of reading that really started to make me be like, you know, reading is really important. Mm -hmm. I really felt like after doing the survey the next year and finding out that many of my peers weren't reading, I, you know, just decided, well, you know, I need to do something. And so that's when I decided to, you know, create the program. But I definitely can relate to a lot of the young boys who don't like reading, you know, and maybe it's for different reasons or whatever, but I definitely can relate and and understand, you know, why many of them, you know, really don't see reading as something that they should be doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Kids just want to be grown. They really do. They just want to be grown. And so if none of the grown people in their life are reading regularly, then a lot of kids just conclude, well, that's not something that we do in my family. Right. Or that's not something that I do. That's an excellent way to put it, because I never thought of it that way. That makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah. What else do you do outside of barbershop books? You know, I, we, I talked earlier, you know, I've seen the video of you crocheting on the subway that, that left the big impact on me because that was a good video. And then, you know, Man. you're involved in comedy, too. Like there's Man. there's all these things you're doing. Real talk, crocheting may be one of the not the but definitely one of the most significant and influential factors in my life. Oh, how do you mean? Because I started crocheting when I was seven and I was good at it. And because I was so good at it, I kept doing it to the point that I didn't care what other people thought. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's something very powerful and transformative about learning at a very young age that you can do something well. Also learning that it's okay to be different And it's okay to be good at something because unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are afraid to do things because they are afraid to fail or they're afraid of what people will think. And so they don't do things and they could be the best person to ever have ever even done that thing. For me, crocheting really gave me a lot of self-confidence to really just like not be pressured by what people thought or what they might want me to do. And part of it, you know, just had to do with me being so good at it and seeing how people respected my talent, because there are lots of things that I may not necessarily just love, but I can still respect people who are excellent at that thing, whatever it is, whether it's surfing or table tennis or whatever it is, you know, Mm -hmm. even if I don't do it, I can still respect the talent. And I feel like Seeing that at a young age and how people respected it, even if they thought it was weird or whatever, it really kind of had a significant influence on me that stuck with me. You know, I also, you know, like you said, I'm a professional comedian. I perform stand up several times a week and I've been doing stand up comedy since August of 2009. So what do you see in the future of all these things that you have going on, including barbershop books? You know, honestly, I just want to see reading spaces and children's books find their way into every single barbershop across the United States that serves young boys. And once those reading spaces get created, then I would like to turn all of those barbershops into book distribution sites. You know, right now, in some communities, they're book deserts. There's a researcher, uh, an education researcher from NYU 
Her name is Susan Newman. And she um, did a study where she found that in some low-income communities, there's as few as one age-appropriate book for every 300 children. Oh, wow. And so when you have book deserts colliding with a lack of relevant reading models, you know, it just turns into a, a really serious and unfortunate situation for a lot of children across the United States. And so if I can actually make it so that young boys of color, every time they're visiting a barbershop, they can take a free book home. Barbershop books could literally triple, quadruple the home libraries of some children in a year. Because a lot of young boys of color, especially black boys, they visit the barbershop. If they have a low haircut at least once a month, some of them actually go twice a month. There's research from the U.S. Department of Ed that shows that students who read for fun just once or twice a month have significantly higher reading scores than students who indicate hardly ever or never reading for fun. So those one to two trips to the barbershop per month actually, you know, have a significant impact on boys reading. Right. Well, good for you, man. So what is the best way for like listeners to help you either with your project or maybe help address the problems that you're addressing like in their areas? So one is book access, getting engaging books into the hands and homes of young boys of color is essential. There was a study done in 27 countries and what they found, including the U.S., what they found is that just having more books in the home, regardless of parents' level of education, regardless of their income, just having more books in the home led to higher educational attainment of the children. Mm -hmm. So what that tells me is that if we can just get more books into the home, it can have a significant impact. But my thing is, I don't think that's the only solution. I think the boys of color and reading and kids living in poverty, they need a lot of help. And so right. I don't think there's just anyone. But I would say definitely, how can people help increasing boys' access? And home is a great place to start. Barbershop Books is a great way to help improve boys' access because we currently purchase books from Scholastic's FACE program, which is a family and community engagement program, which sells books to nonprofits and schools at a 60 to 80 percent discount. You know, I'm looking to hopefully get Scholastic or other publishers to become sponsors to give us books so that we can have a great, even greater impact. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing they can uh, donate. Uh, money right now, we're not accepting book donations because we really don't want people going out and paying retail price for books that we can get at a significant discount. People can recommend books. And so if they go to barbershopbooks.org and they click on the Get Involved tab, they can make a donation there. They can recommend a book. They can also recommend a barbershop. Another and final way that they can get involved is by actually sponsoring a reading space in their local barbershop. It costs only $500 uh, to sponsor a reading space and we'll ship out all the things that they need to the barbershop. All that we ask is that they have a local literacy advocate. We have a form. They're all on the website that they fill out. And that's just the person who will agree to help maintain the space. Those are pretty much the main ways. Our website is barbershopbooks.org. 
You can find us on Twitter at at Barbershop Books. We're also on Instagram at at Barbershop Books. And you can find us on Facebook, Barbershop Books. They want more information about me or want to learn more about uh, my comedy or my kind of background and, and, and educational experiences. They can find more information about me at alvinirby.com. Uh, this has been great. I'm I'm really excited that I was able to come and, and speak with you today. Yeah, me too. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Well, Barbershop Books has actually kind of sparked a national movement to put children's books in barbershops. Over the last few months, I've seen four or five programs pop up across the country that are putting children's books in barbershops. This summer alone, two school districts that I know of have implemented programs that put children's books in barbershops. The school district in Houston, Texas started a program and also the school district in Jackson, Mississippi started a program where they actually put children's books in barbershops. And both of those instances were resulted from people reading and learning about barbershop books. And so they're not even connected to us in any type of official capacity or anything. Yeah. Well, I'm proud of you, man. And I'm really honored that you made time to, to talk with me. So, All right, cool, man. Hey, have a wonderful, wonderful evening. You too, Alvin. I appreciate it. All right, no problem. That was episode 11 of The Floral View. I first published it on August 15th, 2015. Here's an update on Alvin and Barbershop Books as of 2023. Barbershop Books has exploded in popularity since Alvin and I talked for this episode. The Barbershop Books program now provides books to kids at over 250 shops in 22 states and in Washington, D.C. They've been featured on CNN, The Today Show, NPR, Alvin's given a TED Talk, and, and on and on. In 2020, they opened an e-library for young readers to check out books from black and brown authors. And they've given special preferences to new authors to help them in their careers. I follow Alvin on social media. And he's always posting a new award or a grant that he and Barbershop Books have won. And it's really impressive. Uh, Alvin even wrote a children's book of his own a few years ago. Uh, he called it Gross Greg, and kids seem to really enjoy it. Alvin is someone that I'm humbled I got to talk to on this podcast, not only because of what he's accomplished, but because his mission has resonated so deeply with people around the country. He's clearly on the right path to help the babies read, as he likes to say. If you'd like to keep up with what Alvin and Barbershop Books are up to, visit barbershopbooks.org. This has been The Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. I thank you for being kind today. Take care. <laughs>